there in Matthew chapter 22. If you remember last week, uh, we dealt with the first uh, 14 verses of Matthew 22, and we uh, preached an entire sermon on the parable there of the wedding. Uh, this week, we're going to deal with the second part of the chapter, and, and we'll move on. And you need to understand and remember that this, the events of this chapter are all dealing in that last week of, of the life of Christ. Uh, sometimes it's called the Passion Week of, of when Jesus died. And he, he came in to the city, to Jerusalem there, and he's having these conversations. In the next two chapters, he's going to preach some sermons, uh, one directed at the Pharisees as a response to what we're going to be studying tonight. And then, of course, the famous Olivet Discourse in a couple of weeks, I'm sure, maybe three weeks, we'll uh, look at that closely and, and all the end times prophecy that goes along with that. But you need to understand that we're getting close to the end of the life of Christ. He's getting ready to be crucified. And in verse 15, the Bible says, Then went the Pharisees and took counsel how they might entangle him in his talk. Now that word entangle, it means to cause to become twisted together with or caught in. It means to involve someone in difficulties or complicated circumstances from which it is difficult to escape. The, the idea is they want to trap him in his talks. They want to entangle him in his words. The Pharisees and the Herodians and the Sadducees uh, are asking Jesus a series of questions in this passage. And uh, they're, they're asking him these questions. The, the Herodians will come and ask him one question. Then the Sadducees will come and ask him a question. Then the Pharisees will come and ask him a question. Then we end the chapter with Jesus asking them a question. And they're having kind of an intellectual debate. They're having a, a rhetorical kind of going back and forth. And they want to get him to say something that they can later use against him. Because remember, the idea is they want to crucify him. So they're trying to get him to, to get kind of mixed up and, and and to say the wrong thing, they're trying to ask him hard questions to entangle him in his talk. And what ensues as a result of it is kind of this battle of the wits between Jesus and the religious leaders of the day. And I want you to just, we'll just look at um, the, the, the passage and kind of the questions that they ask him and how Jesus answers. The first up are the Herodians. If you look at verse 16, the Bible says, And they sent out unto him their disciples. Now that's a reference to the Pharisees. So it was the disciples with the Herodians. So it's not just the Herodians that are first up. This is kind of round one in this uh, argument going back and forth between re- Jesus and the religious leaders. And the, this, the, the Pharisees and the Herodians kind of come together. But you need to understand this is kind of the Herodians taking the lead on this one. And uh, the Bible says, saying, Master, we know that thou art true and teachest the way of God in truth. Neither carest thou for any man, for thou regardest not the person of men. So they're kind of buttering him up, giving him some compliments. And you know, always love it when someone comes up to me, you know, after a church service and they say, you are such a great preacher and God is using you in a mighty way, but, you know, and then they're going to tell you what they actually think about you. And that's kind of what the uh, Pharisees and the Herodians are doing with Jesus. They're, you know, thou art true and teaches the way of God in truth, neither carest thou for any man, for thou as a God is not the person of men. Now, if that was the end of their statement, praise the Lord, but whenever they, they have something continuing, that's where you get into trouble. Now, let's talk about the Herodians for a second. The Bible doesn't actually tell us a lot about the Herodians. If you look up the passages that have uh, to do with the Herodians, it doesn't really tell us 
who these people were. And there are some historical references in regards to who the Herodians were. We don't normally, you know, we, we like to study the Bible. The Bible doesn't really tell us. So let me tell you what people, who people think the Herodians were. Uh, the Herodians, I'm just going to read this for you. It says the, the, Bible, the Bible doesn't tell us much about the Herodians. But uh, history does tell us that they derived their name as followers of King Herod. You remember King Herod from the Bible. The Herodians were a political party that supported King Herod, Antipas, uh, the Roman Empire's ruler over much of the land of the Jews. Uh, the Herodians favored submitting to the Herods and therefore to Rome for political expediency. They were uh, political foes of the Pharisees who wished to restore the kingdom of David. And uh, even though that's kind of extra biblical material and that's just kind of what history tells about the, Her- Her- about the Herodians, when you look at this question that they asked Jesus, the question that they asked Jesus was meant to kind of put Jesus at odds against the Roman Empire and against the Roman government. So it kind of seems from Scripture that that's probably pretty accurate, that they're called the Herodians because they're followers of Herod. And in fact, in the, in the next chapter, when Jesus is rebuking the Pharisees and rebuking the Sadducees, he rebukes Herod, which is probably more a rebuke towards the Herodians who are followers of Herod. So it seems to be that that all kind of matches with Scripture. But look at verse 17. The Bible says, tell us therefore, what thinkest thou? So here comes the question. They said, well, what do you, what do you think about this? And they say, is it lawful to give tribute unto Caesar or not? Now that word tribute is talking about paying a tax. And they're asking, is it lawful? Is it, and they're not saying, is it legal? Although they are saying that, but what they're saying, is it lawful based on God's law? Meaning, is it right? Would God have us to give tribute unto Caesar or not? So the way they're trying to entangle Jesus with this question is, if Jesus said that, you know, taxes should be paid. If Jesus said you should go ahead and pay those taxes, um, he could be accused of denying God's authority over Israel uh, or, you know, by submitting to Rome's authority in the form of encouraging them to pay the tribute money. Uh, and, and that would put him at odds with God's people or the Jewish people of, of the day, Israel of the day. So what they're trying to do is they're trying to get him to, to answer this question. So if, if, if Jesus says, you know, don't pay or, you know, go ahead and pay those taxes. It's right to pay the taxes. Then they can use that against him and say, see, he's for Rome. He's not for God. He's not for the God of the Bible. Now, if he says you should not pay those taxes, which I wish he would have said that, but he didn't. But if he if he said you should not pay those taxes, then um, uh, he's declaring himself an enemy of Rome, obviously, and then they would use that against him. So I want you to notice the response of Jesus Christ. And, and, and what I want you to understand, as we look at this passage tonight, just kind of make note of this. It's, it's not necessarily what Jesus said to answer the questions, but how he answered the questions. That is very interesting, kind of gives us insight into the Savior. If you look at verse 18, the Bible says, But Jesus perceived their wickedness and said, Why tempt ye me, ye hypocrites? Now he calls them hypocrites because they're trying to get him to say something against the Roman Empire so that they can then turn around and say, He's against the Roman Empire and, and, and you know, put him in prison. When they're Herodians, you know, and they're the ones that love Herod. So it's kind of a hypocritical thing because if he was against the Roman Empire, shouldn't they embrace him? But they're just kind of using it against him. Look at verse 19. He says, show me the tribute money. And Jesus kind of, well, I mean, obviously you, you, you know this, but 
just the wit of Christ and the way he deals with this. He says, show me the tribute money. And they brought unto him a penny. And he saith unto them, whose is this image in superscription? So he says, let me see the money. So they bring him, uh, you know, the, the penny there. And obviously a penny in that day is not the same as a penny uh, in our day. But he, he takes that penny and he kind of holds it up. And, and just like our money today has people's images on it, you know, uh, Abraham Lincoln or whatever. He takes that penny and he says, whose is this image and superscription? They say unto him, Caesar's. Then saith he unto them, render therefore unto Caesar the things which are Caesar's and unto God the things that are God's. So he says, look, if this penny has a picture of Caesar in it and Caesar wants it, then just go ahead and give it back to Caesar. He said, render therefore unto Caesar the things that are Caesar's. And he said, and, and unto God the things that are God's. And he answers the question without really answering the question. Do you understand? And, and because they, when they give him a question where no matter what he says, they're going to be able to entangle him in those words. And he says, well, look, if it belongs to Caesar, then give it to Caesar. If it's got his picture on it, then go ahead and render it to him. And if it belongs to God, then give it to God. Now, from this answer of Jesus, we, we can learn two things, two lessons from the uh, answer that Jesus gave the Herodians. Uh, you're there in Matthew 22. Go back with me to Matthew 17, just real quickly. And I want you to understand a few things about the Lord Jesus Christ. And I know that this isn't going to make me very popular around the after the tribulation crowd, but that's okay. Jesus did not oppose government for the sake of opposing government. Jesus was not an anarchist. Jesus did not have an issue with the government. Now, please mis don't misunderstand me. I don't like our government, okay? Our government's a wicked, corrupt, deceitful government. But so was the government of Christ. And Jesus did not oppose government for the sake of opposing government. In Matthew 17, 24, the Bible says this, And they were, when they were come to Capernaum, they that received tribute money came to Peter and said, Does not your master pay tribute? So here he's being asked the same question. Are, are you going to pay these taxes? Now they're asking Peter, does your master, Jesus, pay tribute? Verse 24. I'm sorry, verse 25. He saith, yes. And when he was coming to the house, Jesus prevented him, saying, What thinkest thou, Simon? Of whom do the kings of the earth take custom or tribute? Of their own children or of strangers? Now, you got to understand what Jesus believes about taxes. Because he says, Simon, do, is the, are they supposed to take the taxes from their own children? Or are they supposed to take the taxes from strangers, from foreigners? Now, right there, that already ought to let you know that our government is mixed up. Because our government taxes its own people. <laughs> and the way, Jesus said, the way it's supposed to work is you're supposed to tax foreigners, not your own people. Verse 26, Peter saith unto him, of strangers. He said, you're supposed to tax foreigners. Now, of course, Jesus, they were foreigners because they were under the Roman Empire, but his response, verse 26 says, Peter saith unto him, of strangers. Jesus saith unto him, then are the children free. And that's how it should be. We shouldn't have to pay all these taxes as American citizens. The children should be free. Now you need to understand this, okay? Jesus clearly did not think that it was right for him to have to pay those taxes. He 
thought it was wrong. He said they should not be charging us. He said the children should be free. He, he said, look, I'm, I'm the Son of God. I, I'm, I'm God in the flesh. My Heavenly Father has not, you know, ordained for me to have to pay tribute to these people. He said, I don't think it's right, Peter, and I don't like it that you told them that I pay taxes when I don't think it's something that we should do. And I agree with all of that, and I'm all for that. And I wish our government would, would take cues from the Lord Jesus Christ. But notice what he says in verse 27. He says, notwithstanding lest we should offend them. Go thou to the sea, and cast an hook, and take up a fish, the first that cometh up, and when thou hast opened his mouth, thou shalt find the piece of money that take, and give unto them for me and thee. So you've got to understand this. Jesus was against paying the taxes. He didn't like paying the taxes. He, said, he thought it was wrong that they were getting charged with taxes, but he went ahead and paid the taxes anyway. And today, there, there's, there's a movement of people who want to attack churches for, uh, you know, I had somebody come up to our church, just a first-time guest maybe four or five weeks ago, and the question they wanted to ask was, are, are, you, are, are you guys, uh, what is it, the C401, C, 501C3, are you guys 501C3? And uh, we're not 501c3, and um, we never have been, and I don't even know what it is. I mean, I, I can't even remember what it's called. That's how much we're involved in it. But, you know, most churches are 501c3, and, and, and what they want to do is they want to attack these, these churches that are 501c3, and we're not 501c3. And I told them, well, we're not 501c3, but if you're looking for a place that's going to look down on people for being 501c3, uh, that's not this place. Because I'm not, I'm, I think it's fine for churches to be 501c3, and they try to, they try to say, well, you're doing this, and you're submitting to the government this way. Look, you got to understand this about Jesus. He did not think it was that big of a deal tax issues and issues about money with the government. He said, I don't like it, I don't agree with it, but I'm just going to pay it anyway. Do you understand that? It wasn't his battle. It wasn't his image. It, it wasn't what he was here to do. He, he wasn't willing to go to prison for that. Do you understand that? And we need to understand, you know, you say, well, I'm, I'm against government taxation. I'm against government. You know, I'm the one that put the quote in the bulletin about, you know, the government's supposed to, you know, uh, protect us and not run our lives. I agree with all that. But at the same time, we need to understand as believers, we are here to do the same thing that Jesus was here to do, which was to seek and to save that which was lost. So I'm not as interested of going out and protesting government, you know, policies as I am in going out and knocking on doors and witnessing to people and getting the gospel. And that's the same stand that Christ took. He said, I don't think we should pay these taxes. I think it's wrong to pay the taxes. I don't think we should do it. But notwithstanding, lest we should offend them. He said, just go ahead and pay. He said, it doesn't really matter. He said, do you think we should pay tribute? He said, look, this coin belongs to Caesar anyway. So just give it back to Caesar if he wants it back. Now, you need to understand this, okay? And, and go with me to Acts chapter 5, so, uh, because I want you to understand. There are some, Jesus is teaching us here, there are some political issues that though we disagree, we should not make that our mission or our agenda or our issue, our one issue. We're going to die on this hill for this issue. Now, there are some political issues that we should take a stand on. What we can learn here is that uh, even though we disagree with the government, like all of the time, sometimes we should just go ahead and submit in certain areas because it, it doesn't need to become our crusade. Now, in Acts chapter 5, we find a story where the disciples, who are the followers of Jesus Christ, did stand up against their government officials and did stand up against what they were being told. Notice Acts chapter 5 and verse 27. The Bible says, And when they had brought them, they set them before the council. Do you see that? 
they set them before the council, and the high priest asked them, saying, Notice what they said to him. Did not we straightly command you that ye should not teach in this name? Now that command there, they're talking about, we, we gave you a law. We told you you need to stop doing this. We commanded that you should not teach in their name. Here's what they did. They made evangelism illegal. They said, don't knock on doors. They said, don't talk about Jesus. They said, did not we straightly command you that you should not teach in this name? And notice the response was, and behold, ye have filled Jerusalem with your doctrine and intend to bring this man's blood upon us. So they go to the church in Jerusalem. They say, hey, you know, there's all this door knocking you've been doing and all this preaching the gospel and trying to get people to say, we're commanding you to stop doing that. We're the council and we're going to tell you you need to stop. And their response to that was, we're going to do more soul winning. We're going to fill this city with the doctrine of Jesus Christ and the gospel of Jesus Christ. Notice verse 29. Then Peter and the other apostles answered and said, we ought to obey God rather than men. Now here's what you got to understand. There are times when certain laws may cause us to have to go against the government because the Bible teaches we should obey God rather than men. But not every government issue is that. Do you understand that? Remember the story of Daniel when they made it illegal to pray to God? What did Daniel do? He prayed to God. Okay? Here's what you need to understand. When laws are passed that cause us to be put in direct disobedience to something that the Bible tells us, then we ought to obey God rather than men. But when laws are passed that are dumb, that are, don't make sense, that aren't right, you know, I, 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 don't, I don't think, look, I don't, I don't think it's right that I should have to pay some Obamacare tax thing so that people that don't work can have insurance. I'm sorry. I just don't think it's right. I don't think it's right to force people who work to have to pay for insurance for people who don't. And I'm not talking about elderly and disabled. I'm talking about people that are lazy that just refuse to work. I think it's wrong. Am I going to take a stand? Am I going to go to prison and say, I'm, I'm just not, look, I'm just going to go ahead and pay the tax and just be done with it. Do you understand that? It's not my mission. It's not, it's not a problem. If, if it's money, just, Jesus says, just let it go. Now they're trying to get you to stop praying. Daniel, you go to the lines then for that. Now they're trying to get you to stop evangelizing. Hey, you, you go to the council and you tell them, hey, we're going to obey God rather than men. But if it's a money issue, if it's a tax issue, if it's just a, a political issue, that it's kind of dumb and it's kind of annoying, but it doesn't really make me sin against God, then we ought to just go ahead and just say, you know what? Let's just do what we got to do so that we can continue doing what we're supposed to be doing, which is preaching the gospel. So they come to Jesus and they say, should we pay the tribute? He says, look, this belongs to Jesus. Now, we learn about how Jesus kind of dealt with these government issues, but not only that, the second lesson that you can learn from this is we learn that kind of Christ stand on the things of this world. He says, render therefore unto Caesar the things that are Caesar's and unto God the things that are God's. And I don't want to spend too much time on this because we have so much to get into, but he's kind of also teaching this principle. There are some things that belong to this world that we as Christians should just not be kind of uh, interested in. The idea is if it belongs to the world, then render it back to the world. And if it belongs to God, then render it to God. Do you understand that? The Bible says that you were bought with a price. You belong to God, so you got to render that back to God. There are things of this world that should not concern us. And it's amazing to me how much Christians are concerned with things that have, we were talking about last night in the discipleship class, things that have no eternal value. 
Things that have, they, they will make no difference in eternity's view. They will make no difference. And if it belongs to this world, because the Bible says all that is in the world, the lust of the flesh, the lust of the, fa- the, the, lust of the flesh, the, good night, I'm going to, the lust of the eyes, the pride of life, is not of the Father, but is of the world. If it belongs to the world, he says, hey, look, if it looks like the world, if it belongs from the world, if it came from the world, render it back to Caesar and render things to God, back to God. Amen. And that's the response. Look at verse 22. When they had heard these words, they marveled and left him and went their way. And by the way, that's, that's the problem. The problem is every time we give the gospel to someone and they don't get saved, the problem is that they left him and went their way. So there, we kind of have the end of round one. And Jesus, I would say, won that round because they didn't have a way to kind of answer. They, they thought, okay, we got him. Whatever answer he gives you know, if he says, pay it, then we can use that against him. If he says, don't pay it, then he says, then, then, then we're going to put him against, you know, Rome, or we're going to put him against God. And Jesus' response is, give back to Rome the things that are Rome's, and give to God the things that are God's. And uh, so Jesus won that round. So then in verse 23, we have round two. Now in round two, we have the Sadducees. Look at verse 23. The same day came to him the Sadducees, which say they, that there is no resurrection. And... And asked him, and let me tell you this about the Sadducees. The Sadducees do not believe in an afterlife. That's what that means, that there is no resurrection. Meaning, they believe that once you die, it's done. Sadducees are like modern day Jehovah's Witnesses and uh, even, I think, the United Methodists. And there's other religions out there that don't believe that anything happens after uh, the Seventh-day Adventists, you know. They, they believe in annihilation. Once you die, you get annihilated. You, never, you don't exist anymore. And that's what the Sadducees believe. So they come, when, we, when I was a kid in, in, in uh, church, they used to teach us the Sadducees don't have, uh, they don't believe in the resurrection. They don't have a hope, you know, for the, the, um, what's going to happen after, after you die. So that's why they're sad, you see. Okay, so that's what we were always told. Uh, kind of a way to help you remember that. So, the same day came to him the Sadducees, which say that there is no resurrection, and ask him. Okay, now notice what they ask, verse 24. Now, you got to understand this, okay? They're, they're going to ask Jesus a hypothetical and really just kind of a ridiculous question. And again, they're, they're hoping to show, because they don't believe in the resurrection, so they're hoping to show the idea of the resurrection as nonsense. Now, notice the question they ask, verse 24, saying, Master... Moses said, if a man die having no children, his brother shall marry his wife and raise up seed unto his brother. Now there were with us seven brethren, and the first, when he had married a wife, deceased, and having no issue, left his wife unto his brother. Likewise, the second also, and the third, unto the seventh. And last of all, the woman died also. Therefore, in the resurrection, whose wife shall she be of the seven? For they all had heard. Now keep your finger there, Matthew. Go to Deuteronomy just real quickly. I want to show you. Uh, you can write this down as a cross-reference because we're supposed to be doing Bible studies. So this will be a good cross-reference for you. Deuteronomy 25. Just to kind of give you the context of where their question is coming from. Deuteronomy 25. And look at verse number 5. Deuteronomy 25 and verse 5. You have Genesis, Exodus, Leviticus, Numbers, Deuteronomy. Deuteronomy 25 and verse 5, the Bible says, Deuteronomy 25, 5, If brethren dwell together, and one of them die, and have no child, the wife of the dead shall not marry without unto a stranger, talking about a foreigner, 
Her husband's brother shall go in unto her, and take her to him to wife, and perform the duty of a husband's brother unto her. And it shall be that the firstborn which she beareth shall succeed in the name of his brother which is dead, that his name be not put out of Israel. So this is the question that they're asking about, or their, their question is in regards to this, uh, th- this law found in the book of Deuteronomy. And this is a little different than our society, and I understand that. But basically, there was a law in the Old Testament where if, 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 you, if a man died and he didn't have a child, he didn't have a son uh, to, to carry on his name, then his brother was supposed to marry that wife. She wasn't supposed to go marry a stranger or foreigner. His brother was supposed to marry his wife and basically become her husband and do the duty of a husband uh, and all those things. But whenever they had that first child, that child would then carry on the name of the brother that died so that so that, that name would not you know, be uh, forgotten or be put out of Israel. That's what that law is referring to. And if, she didn't, if he didn't want to marry her or whatever, if you go on and read, you can find out. There was certain things that they could do. And, I mean, you should read it. It's just a different culture. You know, they have to go to the, the gate. He has to take his shoe off and say, I don't want to marry her. And she spits in his face and all these weird things. But uh, anyway, that would have been nice to live back in those days. Matthew 22. Look at verse 29. And that's, that's basically the story that they're, that the, the question they're referring to. Now, here's what they're saying. Because when a guy dies, doesn't have a child, the brother's supposed to take that child, take, take that wife and then raise seed unto him. So the question they're asking is, this guy died and his, uh, didn't have a child and the brother married her and before they could have a child, he died and then the third brother married her and the fourth brother and the fifth and she married seven brothers and they all died before they could have a child. And then, you know, I'm thinking to myself, why is the FBI not, you know, uh, checking this lady out? You know, every time she marries someone, they die. But anyway, they ask this, and then she dies, and then they're trying to mock at this idea of the resurrection, and they say, you know, so in the resurrection, whose wife shall she be? Now, the reason that they had to make sure that she never had a child is because, you know, let's say she would have married seven guys, but she had a child with a third. Then, it, then the Mormons would have said, well, then she's going to be married to the one that she had a child with, you know, for eternity and all those things. So they're saying, but she didn't have a child with any of them. She was married to all seven of them. So, you know, who is she going to be married to in the resurrection? Notice verse 29. Jesus answered and said unto them, Ye do err not knowing the scripture, nor the power of God. He says, you don't even know what you're talking about. He said, you're asking questions that aren't even based in scripture. He says, for in the resurrection, they neither marry nor are given in marriage, but are as the angels of God in heaven. And of course, the angels are spirits, not having physical bodies. They don't procreate. They don't get married. And he says, look, you're asking me this dumb question, trying to disprove the resurrection. You don't even understand what the resurrection is. He said, because in the resurrection, they neither marry nor are given in marriage. He said, when you, when you get to heaven, you got to understand this. When you got married, it was till death do us part. Once you die, I know the Mormons teach you're going to be married for eternity. And ladies, you, you would love Mormonism. Because the Mormons teach that in, in heaven or whatever, the world that you go live in, you get to be pregnant for all of eternity and just have baby after baby to populate your husband's you know, planet that he's the god of. Doesn't that sound like heaven for you? Just being pregnant forever? That, that'd be great. You guys should all convert to Mormonism. But anyway, they're asking these, and, and, but you got to understand this, okay? Whenever you have dumb questions, and people say, no question is dumb. You, you, there are some dumb questions. 
It's always this. You do err not knowing the scriptures. The problem is always the same. They don't know what the Bible says. And by the way, this is why there's so much false doctrine out there. Because people, people ask dumb questions and come up with dumb ideas and come up with doctrines that are not even close to being found in the Bible. And they say, well, because of this, I think that this would happen. And the answer is always the same. Jesus is always saying the same thing to the Pharisees. Oh, I don't know if you've noticed as we've been going through the book of Matthew, but he keeps saying the same thing to them. Ye do err, not knowing the scripture. Have ye not read? He said, why don't you know this? Why don't you understand this? Why don't you know what the Bible says? You don't have to go there, but Hosea 4, 6 says this. My people are destroyed for a lack of knowledge. Because thou hast rejected knowledge, I will also reject thee, and thou shalt be no priest to me, seeing that thou hast forgotten the law of thy God, and I will also forget thy children. And by the way, let me just tell you this. Whenever someone brings you a hypothetical question that is just this absurd question because they're trying to prove a point, just, just, that ought to just be a red flag that this person doesn't even know what the Bible talks about. The Bible has enough doctrine in it, has enough interesting things in it for us to be able to talk about without having to come up with your absurd, you know, hypothetical question that doesn't make any sense. I was telling the discipleship class last night, um, I I told them the stories, I'll I'll go ahead and tell again, so those of you that were in discipleship, sorry you have to hear it again. But I was telling them that when I was, I was maybe 17 or 18 years old, I was out soul winning, and um, I had my cousin. Now, you know, I was born in Venezuela, and my family moved to the U.S. when I was four years old. So I've, I've been here most of my life, but I was born in Venezuela. And my cousin, who's, who's my, you know, my Aunt Omaida, who comes to church here, uh, her son, uh, they, came, he, they came from Venezuela to visit, and they'd been here for maybe like a month or so. And we were out soul winning. I was, I was maybe 17 or 18 years old, and he was, I don't know, 21 or something like that, 22. And we were out soul winning, and we're knocking on doors, and we're preaching the gospel to this lady. And we're explaining to her, you know, that you have to accept Jesus Christ as your Savior. It's not of works. You can't, you know, you have to ask Jesus to save you. It's not based on how you live your life. You know, it's only through Jesus Christ. You don't get to heaven by how good of a person you are. Because she was like, well, I believe that anybody, if they're a good person, whether they believe in Jesus or not, if they're a good person, they're going to go to heaven. And we're explaining to her, no one's good. Everyone's a sinner. And only through Jesus Christ can you go to heaven. And we're showing her, you know, where Jesus said, I am the way, the truth, and life. No man cometh unto the Father but by me. There is none other name given among heaven whereby we must be saved. We're telling her salvation is only... Because she was like, well, I believe the Muslims and the Hindus and anybody, if they're just a good person, they can go to heaven. And we're telling her, Jesus said, no man cometh unto the Father but by me. It's through Jesus Christ alone. And we're explaining that to her, and she says to me, I just, I just can't believe that. She's like, I can't believe that God just, she's like, what if they've never heard of Jesus? And she says to me, and I'm not, I'm not making this up. I promise you, I'm not making this up. She says to me, what about just in some country and, you know, in South America, you know, in the Amazon, what is some country in Venezuela? That's what she says to me. <laughs> if there's just somebody from Venezuela who's never heard about Jesus, what, what about them? And I was like, well, actually, I was born in Venezuela, and my cousin just got here from Venezuela, and we're preaching you the gospel. <laughs> and she was like, ah, and she like slammed the door in our face. But here's what you understand. When people come up to you with these hypothetical, what about, look, don't worry about the guy that was married seven times, or the girl that was married seven times. Look, it's dumb, okay? The gospel has been preached all throughout this world, and there are people in this world that have never heard the gospel, but that's usually because of either their fault or their their ancestors' fault have rejected it 
And it's our job to go out and preach the gospel. But here, the, these people, they come up and they give him this hypothetical question. I can just see Jesus kind of rolling his eyes like, okay, are you done? How many? Seven? You know? Okay, well, let me, here's the problem. You never read the Bible, have you? Because the Bible says that in the resurrection, you're neither married or given in marriage. And if you look at verse 33, and when the multitude heard this, they were astonished at his doctrine. So round one versus the Herodians, Jesus shuts them down. Round two versus the Sadducees, Jesus shuts them down. Now we have round three. Look at verse 34. But when the Pharisees had heard that he had put the Sadducees to silence, so they were like, oh man, he put the Sadducees to silence. They had a really good question. That's what they're saying. They were gathered together. Then one of them, which was a lawyer, asked him a question. Now notice, he asked him a question tempting him trying to entangle him in his words, and saying, Master, which is the great commandment in the law? Now, we would look at that and we think, well, what's the big issue with asking what's the great commandment in the law? You know, how is that tempting him? But you've got to understand, in asking Jesus to choose one great commandment, they were trying to make it seem as if Jesus was neglecting other commandments. Do you see, do you see what I'm saying? So when they're like, hey, what's the greatest commandment in the law? And Jesus said, it, they were hoping that he was going to say, you know, probably the best one is don't make an idol. And then they could be like, well, what about the Sabbath day? You don't think that one? You see what I'm saying? They're trying to get him to like choose one so that they can put him against all the other ones. So instead of promoting one command over another, Jesus just defines the law in its essence through a commandment. Look at verse 37. Jesus said unto him, thou shalt love the Lord thy God with all thy heart and with all thy soul, and with all thy mind. Now, you know, we, we could preach for weeks just on that commandment right there. Can you, can you imagine that God has commanded for us to love him with all your heart, with all your soul, and with all your mind? He says this is the first and great commandment. Now, this is the actual commandment found in Scripture. All throughout the Bible you find the commandment that we ought to love the Lord thy God with all thy heart, with all thy soul, with all thy mind. But here's why it was so brilliant for Jesus to bring out this commandment. Because when he says to them, you are to love the Lord thy God with all thy heart, with all thy soul, with all thy mind. When he picked that one and said, that's the greatest. Then when they come back to him, if they come back to him, and they said, well, what about the Sabbath day? Then he could say, well, look, if you love God with all your heart, with all your soul, with all your mind, you're going to keep the Sabbath day. Well, what about the not making idols? Well, if you love the Lord thy God with all your heart, with all your soul, with all your mind, you're not going to make an idol. Do you see what I'm saying? It was brilliant for him to choose this one because they were trying to put him against the other. But he chooses the one commandment that encompasses all the commandments and the one commandment that really, if, if you follow this one, you'll follow all the rest. If you love God with all your heart, with all your soul, with all your mind, you're not going to disobey God in any other question, in any other command. And then he takes it further, verse 38. He says, this is the first and great commandment. He says, and the second is like unto it. He said, I'll even tell you what the second greatest commandment is. Thou shalt love thy neighbor as thyself. And he says, on these two commandments hang all the law and the prophets. We talked about it a few weeks ago, so I won't take the time to show it to you tonight. But if you remember a few weeks ago, we talked about the, the commandments are divided into this idea of our responsibility to God and our responsibility to men. And specifically the Ten Commandments, even though there's way more than just Ten Commandments. The Ten Commandments, if you remember, the first four and arguably the fifth one all have to do with our relationship to God. 
you know, to not make an idol, to not worship idols, to not take the name of the Lord thy God in vain, to keep the Sabbath. All of those had to do with man's relationship to God. The last set, you know, and the one about honoring your father and your mother, that's kind of both because you have a heavenly father that you should honor and an earthly father that you should honor. And then, you know, the ones about thou shalt not kill, thou shalt not commit adultery, thou shalt not bear false witness, all those have to do with our relationship between men and other men. And what Jesus is saying here is if you love the Lord thy God with all your heart, with all your soul, with all your mind, you're not going to break any of the, uh, you're not going to take the name of the Lord your God in vain. You're not going to, you're not going to, you know, forsake the Sabbath and you're not going to worship idols and you're not going to do all those things. And he says, and if you love your neighbor as yourself, he said, guess what? If you love your neighbor as yourself, you're not going to steal from your neighbor. You're not going to kill your neighbor. You're not going to commit adultery with his wife or with her husband. You're not going to hurt your neighbor. So he says, on these two commandments hang all the law. And the prophets. Don't try to get into a, you know, debate with Jesus Christ. He's just going to annihilate you. And he basically, they, they try to get him to answer in a way. Keep in mind, all, they, they're not asking questions because they're just kind of interested in what he has to say and they're trying to learn the Bible. They're trying to catch him in his words and they're asking him specific questions that by human you know, standards we might think, well, there's not a right answer to this. If I say this, then you're going to attack me this way. If I say this, you're going to attack me this way. But all three times Jesus was able to explain to them you know, where it is uh, that they were misunderstanding or not understanding the scripture. You know what? I forgot to tell you this, but let me go, go back to the Sadducees. Remember the guys that don't believe in the resurrection? Um, I forgot, I skipped this, but let me, let me show this to you. Look at verse 31. Because Jesus answered their question. He said, uh, you do err not knowing the scripture, right? And, and, and he says, you know, your problem, and you got to understand, that's why I've already Baptist Church. We emphasize Bible reading, Bible reading, Bible reading. I'm getting excited about January. For those of you that don't know, January is Bible month at Verity Baptist Church, and we put out a challenge to everyone. In, in, in January, we put out a challenge for, for, we try to get as many people as possible to read nine chapters a day in the month of January, in the month of November. And if you read nine chapters a day in the month of November with a couple of grace periods, you'll read the entire New Testament in the month of uh, November. We have plaques out in the foyer that show all the people that have read it. And I'm getting excited about that because I, 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 I love, someone came up to me uh, just a few days ago and said, Pastor, I finished reading the Bible for the first time cover to cover. And she said, it all started with nine chapters a day. And I was so excited. And I'm getting excited about it now. But you, you ought to get excited about reading the Bible. You know, you, you say, well, I like preaching. Look, preaching is good, but it not not take the place of just you sitting down with your Bible and the Holy Spirit of God and reading the Bible and understanding it. Now notice, remember they attacked him in regards to the resurrection? And he says, well, you don't even know what you're talking about. But look at verse 31. He, I, I love Jesus. He, um, he, he, takes, they, he knows that they don't believe in the resurrection. So he takes the point further. He takes it to them and says, not only are you wrong about your dumb question, but he says also... Let me explain to you why the resurrection is real. And look at verse 31. He says, but as touching the resurrection of the dead. So he says, your, your question was dumb and we're done with that. But let me explain to you something about the resurrection, you Sadducees. He says, notice this. You got to underline this in the Bible. Have ye not read? That's always the problem. Whenever someone's bat- wrong on any doctrine, it's because they haven't read. Have ye not read? That which was spoken unto you by God saying. Now notice what he says. Because this is, this is what God, God said this all throughout the Old Testament. And you got to understand this. God said, he said this. He said, I am. I am the God of Abraham and the God of Isaac and the God of Jacob. Now you got to understand this. God said that throughout the Old Testament 
after the death of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob. They had already been dead physically for years and years and years and years and years. And God would go around telling, you know, Moses and telling all sorts of different people. He would say, I am the God of Abraham, the God of Isaac, the God of Jacob. And Jesus says, you know, you don't believe in the resurrection. You know, you don't believe in the resurrection. He says, have you not read that which was spoken unto you by God saying, I am the God of Abraham, the God of Isaac, and the God of Jacob. Now notice what he says. God is not the God of the dead, but of the living. Now here's what he's saying. He's saying, if there was no resurrection, if there was no afterlife, if nothing happened after your death, if Abraham and Isaac died and they did not live anywhere else, they just ceased to exist, then God would not have said, I am the God of Abraham and Isaac and Jacob. He would have said, I was the God of Abraham, Isaac and Jacob. Do you understand that? If, if they didn't exist anymore, he would have said to Moses, I was the God. Of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob. But he says, no, I am the God. Because Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob were all in heaven. He says, I still am the God. I present tense am. They are still with us. And that's what Jesus is calling them out. He says, have you not read that which was spoken unto you by God, saying, I am the God of Abraham, the God of Isaac, the God of Jacob? And then Jesus says, God is not the God of the dead, but of the living. And when the multitude heard it, they were astonished at his doctrine. I just, I forgot to mention that, so I wanted to make sure we went back and covered that. Now, I want you to notice at the end of, uh, at the end of round three there, look at verse number 40, Genesis 22 and verse number 40. Actually, I'm sorry, look at verse 41. The Herodians came and asked their question. Jesus sent them away with their tail between their legs. And the Sadducees came and asked a question. Jesus sent them away. And the Pharisees came and asked their question, and Jesus sent them away. With, they were astonished. And now Jesus is getting ready to deliver, you know, that knockout punch. He's, he's getting ready to finish the fight right here. And in verse 41, he says, While the Pharisees were gathered together, Jesus asked them, saying, He says, I got a question for you. He says, What think ye of Christ? Now, you've got to remember the word Christ means Messiah. So he's asking them, what do you think about the Messiah? He says, whose son is he? Now, the reason he has the question, because notice, they, everybody knows whose son Christ was. They say unto him, the son of David. If you remember our very first sermon, all the way in the book of Matthew chapter 1, we took the lineage of Jesus Christ all the way back through David to Abraham. Everybody knew that the Messiah, the Christ, was going to come from David. Now, keep in mind, Jesus just walked into town, and they were all saying, Hosanna to the son of David, right? So they all know that Jesus meets that qualification of being the Messiah. He says, let me ask you a question. What think ye of Christ? He's a, he's a, not, not of me, you know, but just of, of the Messiah in general. Whose son is he? They say unto him, the son of David. Now, here's what you got to understand. They thought that Christ, that the Messiah would be a physical descendant of David. Verse 43, he saith unto them, How then doth David in spirit call him Lord? Saying, The Lord said unto my Lord. Now notice, the Lord, capital L, capital O, capital R, capital D, that's Jehovah God. The I am Jehovah God said unto my Lord. Now that capital L, Lowercase O-R-D is a title there. It's like saying, my boss, my sir, my 
the guy that I take directions. Now, this is, this is a quote from Psalm. Let, uh, let's just go there just real quickly. We, we got five minutes. Go to Psalm 110. If you open up your Bible just right in the center, you're more than likely following the book of Psalm. Psalm 110, look at verse 1. And this is a passage that is dealing with the Messiah. They would all know this. They would all recognize this quote. And here's what, here's what uh, Jesus is teaching the, the Pharisees. He says in, in Psalm 110 and verse 1, the Bible says, The Lord, notice how Jesus is quoting scripture. The Lord, Jehovah. Now, you got to understand, this is David speaking. It says, a psalm of David. Okay, so David is speaking here, and he says, The Lord, Jehovah, said unto my Lord. You understand what David is saying? He's saying, The Lord said to my boss, said to my, you know, my master, said to my captain, my Lord, sit thou at my right hand until I make thine enemies thy footstool. So here's what Jesus is saying. Because they, he said, well, whose son is Christ. Whose son is he? They said, well, he's the son of David. He says, well, if he's the son of David, then why does David in spirit call his son Lord? Because you wouldn't call your son, you know, I wouldn't look at my son Joshua and say, hey, boss, what do you want me to do today? They come to me and they ask, hey, boss, you know, what do you need done today? I need to go pick up the dog poop. You know, that's what I need you to do. I'm in charge because I'm the dad. But Jesus is saying, you think David runs the Messiah, but why does David submit to the Messiah? He says, why if David then call him Lord, if you go back to Matthew twenty-two forty-five, 45, he says, if David then call him Lord, how is he his son? Now look, you can't deny that he was the son of David. But he's saying, look, if, if he's the son of David, that, that's fine, but, but how is he David's Lord? And here's what he's trying to show them. He's trying to explain to them the deity of Jesus Christ. Go to Revelation 22. This is the last passage we'll look at. We'll go back to Matthew and we'll be done. We can do this in three minutes. Revelation 22, uh, look at verse number uh, 16. This is one of my favorite verses in the Bible. Revelation 22 and verse 16. should be fairly easy to find. Last book in the New Testament, Revelation 22, verse 16. The Bible says, I, Jesus, have sent mine angel to testify unto you these things in the churches. Now, this is Jesus speaking in the book of Revelation. Notice what Jesus says. He says, I am the root and that's the idea there is that I'm the beginning or I'm the one that started. I'm the one that created. I'm the one that started. Now notice what he says. And the offspring, the offspring is a reference to the fruit. So the idea here is of a tree. And he says in this tree, now notice, who's he talking about? He says, I am the root and the offspring of David. That's what we're talking about, right? And here's what Jesus is saying. He's saying, if David was a tree, he says, I, Jesus, am the root and the offspring. He said, I created him, and I came from him. And the idea that Jesus is teaching is that I am God in the flesh. And you got to understand, today there is an attack on the deity of Jesus Christ. I don't know why I keep bringing up our Mormon friends, but the Mormons deny that Jesus is God. They say he's a God, one of many gods. The Jehovah's Witnesses say that Jesus is an angel. He's not God. The Seventh-day Adventists say that Jesus is an angel. Again, he's not God. Many people will say he was a prophet. He was a teacher. He was a good man. But you got to understand, he was more than a prophet. He was more than a teacher. He was more than a descendant of Abraham and Isaac and Jacob and David. Yes, he is the son of David, but they also referred to him as Lord because he's God. He's the root 
and the offspring of David and the bright and morning star. And Jesus, Jesus is kind of throwing it in their face. Because keep in mind, they were just, remember in the temple, remember he was turning over all, all the different, you know, uh, money changes and all that. The little kids were saying, the son of David, the son of David, the son of David. Remember the Pharisees went to Jesus and they said, hey, you know, why are these kids calling you that? And he says, hey, out of their mouth, God has perfected praise. So everybody knows that Jesus is the son of David, but now he's telling them, you know what? I'm not only the son of David, I'm also David's God. He said, I'm also David's Lord. He said, I'm also David's boss. Now look at verse 46, Matthew 22, 46. And no man was able to answer him a word. Now that's been going on this whole chapter. But here's where Jesus, how we know Jesus delivered the knockout punch. No man was able to answer him a word, neither durst. Now that word durst there, that's an archaic word. for It's our modern word, dared. So it says, neither dared any man from that day forth ask him any more questions. They were done. Now here's what you got to understand. The religious leaders realize that they will not be able to beat Jesus in rhetoric. They realize that they're not going to be able to win a debate with Jesus. They realize that when it comes to wits, they've been outwitted. So now they turn their attentions. They realize that they cannot beat him in argumentative conversation. So now they're going to just conspire against him and they will defeat him in treachery. But this was kind of the last nail in the coffin where Jesus kind of just finished them. And they just said, We're, we, can't, we can't even talk to this guy. I don't, I, don't even, I don't even have the guts to go ask him another question. Now in the next chapter, Jesus is going to just start preaching to the Pharisees and Herod and the Sadducees. And he's going to preach a real hard sermon to them. And of course we know that that will lead to his death. But... We kind of have this interaction. And, and just one last thought. I want you to notice, Jesus could have very easily, if Jesus was the preacher that was just kind of trying to get this shock effect, he could have just, you know, answered these questions in a way to just kind of shock everyone. And when they all, you know, started, you know, calling the Roman soldiers, he could have just disappeared or whatever. But notice, that's not how Jesus acted. He was, he was more interested in making sure they understood the Bible than just offending them. And he could have answered the questions in a way to just kind of offend them and say, get out of here, get your penny out of my face. But he answered their question in a diplomatic, in a, a way that if, if not the Pharisees and if not the Sadducees and if not the Herodians, at least the people around them, all walked away realizing, oh, that's what the Bible says. And that ought to be our goal. As fundamental Baptists, it's easy to get into this idea that we're just going to get up there and we're just going to preach and be mean and angry. Look, and I'm all for preaching and being mean and being angry. But our goal is not to offend as much as it is to help people grow. Now, if people get offended from the Word of God, then that's fine. But let them get offended by what the Bible says, not how we said it. And that's how Jesus answered these questions. He's, he answered them in a very careful way to make sure they understood and they learned and they dared not ask him another question, but he wasn't overtly just trying to offend them either. Let's bow our heads.